Hi there. Welcome to another edition of Making Money. The financial coach, Ron Hebert, joins us. I'm Gordon Whitehead, retired broadcaster. You know, Ron, sometimes I facetiously make a remark to friends of mine that have, you know, knowing I'm retired, and they say to me, Gord, what do you, what do, you do with yourself? What, do you, what, what, do you, what keeps you busy? I say, I don't do anything. I do nothing, and I'm really good at it, right? But I say it, <laughs> I say it somewhat facetiously. I don't mean it. But that's what we want to talk about is the risk of doing nothing is is not good for you if you want to invest for the future, right? You know, too many people, uh, they have been afraid of losses. I mean, they, the media, it's, if, if, if a speculator blows himself up, it, it's in the media for weeks and months afterwards, and it scared a lot of people. And But what is seldom talked about are the large numbers of people who take zero risk in their lives and end up with virtually nothing at the end of the day because their savings never grew fast enough to keep up with inflation. And as a result, they never invested in stocks, they never invested in real estate, they never owned their own business, or frankly, they never even bought shares in the company they work for, or even put money in a pension plan because most pension plans have an equity component to it, and they've just been scared of it. So they go nowhere parking their money in low to no interest savings accounts and taking no risk. And, of course, what we want to talk about today is taking no risk could be the biggest risk of all. And you have an example here, and this one is, uh, this is an eye popper when you look at the numbers here. Well, if you take a look at treasury bills, and there's a, company, a Chicago-based firm called Ibbotson Associates, and uh, I followed this stuff for, for years, and they look at what happens if you invest a certain amount in a certain type of asset over, over a longer period of time. And so if you bought U.S. treasury bills, which were considered the literally the safest investment of all in 1926, uh, they would have increased in value to $21 by 2014. So $1 grew to $21. But if you took that same dollar and then you'd invested in large company stocks like the S&P 500 or some of its predecessors, you would have uh, assumed a real value that's after inflation of 5317 So your $1 would have either grown to $21 if you took no risk or 5000 317 if you uh, took and bought some equities. So the performance gap is just enormous. So the risk of, of low to no returns is just uh, the gap between taking no risk and taking some risk is just enormous. Inflation, the hidden thief, you call it. And we're living that right now. I mean, you know, inflation's chewing away at your savings here right now. You know, and there's three ways governments can get underneath their debt, out from underneath their debt pile. In rare cases like Alberta, 2004, they can pay it off. Uh, secondly, uh, and this is what's used by economic basket cases like Argentina, they simply default and leave creditors holding the bag. I think they've done that nine or ten times now over the last hundred and some years. The third and most common method is governments to crank up the money supply and inflate their way out of it. So they just print money to pay off their debt. And when a country prints lots of new money, its currency loses value and your paycheck is stripped of its buying power. And few really understand how much this can affect you. And our last serious bout of inflation in this country was 40 years ago. So most younger people especially just don't remember how devastating a long period of high inflation could be. But a good example would be uh, Argentina. They had a 10-year bout of inflation. And it used to be where 40,000 pesos at the beginning of their last inflationary period could buy you a fairly nice middle-class home. 
A decade later, the same cash, the 40,000 pesos, would be very lucky if it bought you a nice silk necktie. So inflation can be devastating, and especially when you have uh, countries that just recklessly print more money and take on more debt, uh, you've got to be very cautious of this. And so it's not just your money being safe. It's your money growing faster than inflation and taxes. And if you can't get your money to grow faster than inflation and taxes, you're going backwards each year. It's just really that simple. And that's the scenario in which we find ourselves today. I mean, we've printed money at a at a breakneck pace here for the last, what, three years or, or longer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, though you look at the money supply in the last three or four years, in most countries it's up 30% or more. And so they've printed currencies like there's no tomorrow. And, of course, uh, when you do that, you get currency devaluation. And I saw an interesting statistic, Gord. Of the 750 currencies that existed since the year 1700, only 20% have survived. Uh, Most of them have blown themselves up. Others have disappeared because of war. Uh, And there's a few that have stuck around, like the dollar or the British pound. But if you look at over 100 years, they've lost over 95% of their purchasing power. And... There has never been an economic system over the long term that hasn't debased their currency into nothing. And this is the reason that investors refer to cash as trash, is because if you sit there and your money does nothing, it uh, just ends up going backwards. And so you've got to have your money to grow, grow, because there's one thing that's a constant in this world is that governments will... In, tend to increase their debt and increase the money supply. And so you have to find a way to keep ahead of currency devaluation and uh, currency and buying power uh, inflation. Otherwise, you're literally, we'll reach retirement and there'll just be nothing there in the piggy bank. And over the years, Ron, I think a lot of people, it, the first thing that pops into the front lobe of their brain is, well, gold, I, I can use gold. Gold is the answer. And that's not necessarily the case, is it? Yeah, I mean, for for peop- certain uh, part of the investment community, gold is the answer. What's the question? And gold has always been considered a good asset and to own when times are turbulent. Investors are looking for protection, and I totally get that. I mean, I have a position in gold in case things blow themselves up. But a long-term investor uh, shouldn't look at gold because it's not a winner. Look at the real or inflation-adjusted return of gold between 1802 and 2012, so literally 210 years, uh, literally showed that gold grew on an inflation-adjusted basis. In other words, above the rate of inflation, it grew 0.7% per year. That means a dollar invested in the yellow metal in 1802 would have grown to $4.52 210 years later, whereas a dollar invested in a portfolio of American stocks over the same period of time would be worth 704000 so wow. the moral of the story here is gold might keep you out of the poorhouse, but it's certainly not going to make you rich. So how do we how do we get out of this no-risk cycle? Like, what's the best strategy here? Like, we don't want to do nothing. We've proven that that's not the right idea. What's the best strategy? Well, first of all, you've, you've got to start looking at risk differently. Most people look at, when markets fall, they look at risk, risk, risk. I can't get in. I can't get in. But bear markets are usually an opportunity 
to find assets that are undervalued or trading at a discount. And because the, there's been 17, I think it is, bear markets since uh, 1925, uh, they come along about once every six years. And the last four, uh, the ones we've had since uh, 2000, um, have been pretty short in duration, averaging only about nine or ten months. So they don't stick around very long. So you got to think of bear markets as a key opportunity building long-term wealth because that's when you can actually buy things at a discount. So instead of hiding under your bed in a fetal position, sucking your thumb, that's the time investors need to be aggressive going out and buying things when they can actually find them cheap. And a lot of people have, have really taken it on the chin in the last little while. I think of people that played cryptocurrencies. Man, you want to talk about taking a knockout punch. Well, there again, you will probably want to go, uh, if you're looking for a good place to start where you can get some higher uh, rates of return, is go to the show we did two weeks ago on the best of the best where we took 18 different sectors of the economy that are the most frequent places where investors put their money. And we took some of the, what our consideration is of the best stocks in each of the sectors. They're the high quality names, uh, the names that uh, have, have been there through thick and thin, the high quality ones. And that's definitely where you want to start. What about home ownership? I mean, that's been talked about so much now. The, the common thing that you hear these days is, well, nobody can afford to buy a house anymore. Well, that's not really true. If you, if you don't want to live with the expectations of having everything right off the, off the get-go, we've talked about this over the years, you start small if you have to, right? Yeah, and you don't, if you want to live in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver, well, you're probably, if, if uh, you can get off in a better paying job because your cost of living is lower, and you can buy a house at a quarter of the price in other places, and then if you want to move back later, you can but uh, there's a lot of theoretical debate about whether over the long run it's financially better to buy a home or to rent and not take the risk of volatile interest rates and real estate prices and so on. Meanwhile, in the real world, the answer is staggeringly obvious. And this is uh, my experience, and uh, the data goes to show that real estate is one of the best paths to uh, long build long-term wealth. And if you look at the numbers, in Canada, homeowners between the ages of 55 and 64 have a median net worth of $952,100. In other words, the people in that age group that own a home, whereas renters that have rented their whole life and not bought a home have a median net worth of $40,000. This makes owning a home and those who own a home almost 24 times wealthier than their renters. So... Uh, all I can say is I still think over the long term, owning a home is one of the best ways to build long-term wealth. You know, I, like I say, I don't know if I'd buy in Toronto or Vancouver right now because those markets are bubbly. But in a lot of places, real estate represents some pretty good values. And over the long term, I think uh, that is the bedrock place where most people should start uh, building uh, their strategy for long-term wealth is in home ownership. You made a point here on a, on a note you sent me that boring is beautiful. <laughs> well, you know, people are often neglect owning plain vanilla companies that stay out of the news and just sort of soldier quietly producing 
slow and steady profits. And we talked about uh, that two weeks ago in our best of the best. We were talking about Pepsi. And here's a company that just year after year and decade after decade has been able to grow its earnings. And this is just an example. There's hundreds of other steady eddies we could look at. But these steady eddies get lumped in with cutting-edge companies because it's assumed that uh, these high-growth companies uh, come with a lot of volatility, and most people don't like volatility. But that's just not the case. I mean, if you take the NASDAQ index, which started in 1971, and it's where all that high-tech, high-growth, high-risk, high-glamour stocks list, it has seen returns since its launch date that are less than those of the Dow Jones Utility Index. Now, let's stop and look at that. The Dow Jones Utility Index is an index of American utility stocks. And those utility stocks have outperformed the Glamour Growth Index since 1971. So we're talking over 50 years now that utilities have, um, over the long term, provided better returns. Over the short term, uh, the last 5, 10 years, not so much. But even in the last year where that index was down almost 35%, uh, utilities will get the job done. They produce regular dividends, give you slow, steady growth but they do it with far less risk. They're way less volatile. And as you've talked about on our Best of the Best show, Ford is just a great example. Over 50 years of increasing their dividend, right? Yes, a very high-quality name. Dividend aristocrats, that's one of those. <laughs> yeah, here again, the, buying companies that, that give good returns but have far less risk is how most people, I think, should invest their money. And certainly I know how you and I invest our money for it. And one such example is stocks that make up the S&P Dividend Aristocrats Index. This is a select group of companies and the S&P 500, which are the big 500 names in the U.S. anyways, who've raised their dividends for at least 25 years in a row. And there's only, I think, 62 companies that make that list. So it's a very selective list. But if you take a look since the year 2000, the dividend aristocrats have doubled the return of the S&P 500. And when we had the big downturn in 2000, uh, between 2000 and really, uh, markets rallied up and then they, they went back down and bottomed out, it looks like, here in the fall of 2022, you'll find that uh, dividend aristocrats were down about 16%, so they still go down. But then you look at the other side of the equation, the companies that pay no dividends, they were down 30%. So you can get quality returns with a lot less risk by owning really good names that increase their dividends every year. And so if you're afraid of the markets, uh, owning some dividend aristocrats, these high-quality names, is a good way to start. Uh, Just in conclusion, I want to say there's a huge gap between high risk and no risk. And I don't think that most investors should be on either extreme. It's in that happy middle ground uh, where you get reasonable returns with low levels of risk that most people should be. And it's in that happy middle area that over time, if you invest, uh, you're not going to be sitting there at 65 years old and looking at an empty bank account. You've got to do something. You've got to take a little bit of risk. It doesn't matter how you want to do it, whether it's owning a little bit of real estate investing in a friend's business, owning some uh, stocks, investing in the company RSPs, uh, investing in company stocks. There's lots of ways. But you've got to take some risk to expose some of your money to the higher growth areas or you're just going to suffer what I think is probably the biggest risk of all is doing nothing. 
You know, Ron, I think back to, uh, to 1981 when I met my wife. And, uh, you know, we talked about how rates were ridiculously high at that time. And we hummed and hawed. We were renting a place. We hummed and hawed about buying. And, and we finally, you know, we sat down and I said, look, we got to roll the dice here. If, you know, if we continue to rent, that's money going out we're never going to see again. Yeah, it's going to cost us to, to make this step, but let's see if we can't do it. And I think people should be employing that strategy today. Yeah, it's a troubling time. Real estate prices are high, but they're not high everywhere, as you've pointed out. And as you said, home ownership is, is a key to good wealth in the future, right? You know, these are, these are just some very simple but concrete steps you can take to put yourself on the path over the long term where you get to the finish line and you're, you're not just frozen with, with fear because your bank account is empty, you haven't done anything, your money has just sat there and rolled over and over virtually, not even earning the rate of inflation. So uh, hopefully uh, th- these will be some ideas that will help you and spur you on to just getting a balanced approach out there. And as we say, if you have a show suggestion or a question, you'd like some clarification on something we touched on in one of our episodes, uh, feel free to drop us a line. We're approachable. You can reach us at letsmakemoney.ca. It'll come directly to our inbox or also through our friends at cfcw.com. Back again next week with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, another edition of Making Money. We will join you then. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.